Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. This is episode 6,793. <laughs> it feels like that at this point, right? <laughs> I have no idea which episode number this is. It's either 18 or 19, I think. I think it's I 19. Know. I feel like I remember listening to the last episode and you saying that that was episode 18. That doesn't necessarily mean that that was correct. My brain is not a trustworthy thing at this point, especially after, you know, everything that's been going on recently. My brain is just not a trustworthy thing. In this day and age, Kerry, you just can't trust anyone. It's fake news. <laughs> it's, um, true that, true yeah. that. So... Uh, I'm Angela from the band Bug Eye and this week my co-host is Kerry also from the band Bug Eye and if you're new listening to the show basically Bug Eye is an indie rock disco punk whatever band you want to chuck on us is fine band and uh, there's always two of us on the podcast each week telling you a story from rock or pop or just something music related yeah um not necessarily those genres. And we also come armed with some new music. So I hope that has made you really excited to listen to the show. Woohoo! Excitement! Buzz! Yeah. All those I think things. I need to f- definitely need to find a new way each week to describe... I mean, it is what it is, though. Like, how are you going to describe it in a new way each week? Like, it's could pretty... You could do a rap. You could do a ukulele <laughs> song. <laughs> It's been a while. It's been a while since I've broken out the ukulele. I feel like maybe it's it's time. Okay, so this week on the show, and I'm quite excited about this, but also really, really nervous because I get to pretend that this isn't a music podcast, that it's a true crime podcast. Bum, bum, bum. Carrie, do you know? Do think you I know do. And I'm do? Also, I think I know, and I'm also quite excited. I feel like we've been building to this point for a while, right? Yeah, because for, yeah, since the start of the podcast, this person's name has kept popping up. Uh, so I thought it was about time that she did a show that focused about this. So this week I'm doing Charles Manson and his many ties to music. Good old Charlie. Pops up everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who are you covering this week? I'm not covering a person. I've got a bit left of field today, actually. Um, Essentially, because it was a way for me to do really lazy research, for being totally honest. But um, I am going to talk... Basically, I'm really missing gigs at the moment. Yeah. And so I'm going to talk about the origins of some of the things we do of gigs and where they sort of came from. So um, That's cool. I'm going to talk about uh, the origin of sort of development of headbanging, stage diving and crowd surfing and moshing. That's really cool. That's really, really cool. Um, I'm so jealous. You've picked another good one, Kerry. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to think outside the box. No, but that's that's great because today I was really... Because obviously I've got notes on, like, Charles, Matt, like, on loads of different shows that we're doing later down the line. Just, yeah. Well, I say loads. That makes me sound really prepared. I think I've got <laughs> three... Like, I've, I've started one on a certain person. I've written, like, two sentences. Sure. But, you know... There's ones where it's like, no, no, There's no, some that sort of planning involved. for today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was Googling today. It was just like, you know, funny stories from rock. 
bizarre stories from this Rob. is exactly what i do backstage yeah. horrors you know yeah. all of this stuff like literally it was almost like sun headlines no seriously that's into that's literally exactly <laughs> what i was doing today and then somehow whatever rabbit hole of stuff i went down led me to where i've ended up today with what i'm going to talk about oh well, well done well done i just i gave up in the end and i was like i just i just need to do charles manson i just need yeah to, for to sure get it done i agree um and new music this week from me, I'm playing, um, oh my God, I've got so many bits of paper surrounding me. I'm going to play a song called um, The King's House by The Gulps. Very cool. Love The Gulps. And I am going to play a song called I'm Leaving Berlin by Teenage Waitress. That sounds good to me. I don't know them, so that'll be a good one. You will learn more about it when the time comes. Ah. It already sounds like okay. So the name of the band and the name of the song just sound like it's already like a cult classic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I feel like it totally could be. I'm a big fan of the song. I'm I'm excited to play it and chat about it. So I'm going to be totally real with you that this was totally a lazy research day for me today, and so this is 100% Wikipedia research today, which is not normally. I normally make more effort. So anyone that wants to call into question anything feel totally free this is pure wikipedia and partially what i want to talk about is just how funny entry like entries on wikipedia are and there are going to be some bits i'm just going to read straight off because they are so bizarre but anyway so like i said i'm massively missing gigs recently playing gigs going to gigs as i think we all are at the moment um and there have been some government announcements right like today yeah of things that might be happening but it all sounds a bit questionable to be honest of how realistic it's going to be especially for like the small grassroots venues right that we tend to play in and go to a lot of the time also did you hear that the deaf institute is closing down and for those listening that don't know what that is it's it's a really really cool venue in manchester that has always been really really busy loads of shows sold out there great touring spot for a lot of bands that are sort of on the verge of breaking, you know, like for, I think it's like 500 capacity or yeah, something I think like that. So. Decent size. It's one of those those venues that's really iconic. I mean, even Queens of the Stone Age played there um, as a gimmick when they were touring Songs of the Deaf. Yeah. I heard today they played the Deaf Institute. Sorry. It is, is it is just properly devastating though. And I think what's, what's the most devastating thing, that's the, the most devastating thing about it is that, it's just you know it's just the start do you know what I mean like it's just this is the beginning and it's such a it's such a great venue to see go that's so sad and you just fear the ones that are gonna follow do you know what I mean I know but then but then also um it's a case of a lot of venues were in trouble before this so I think I think lockdown has has obviously been like the final nail in the coffin for a lot of, of venues, but this this issue started before um, the pandemic, and but one of my hopes is that new venues will pop up, or it will just you know there'll be a resurgence of of people just creating their own shows in unique spaces, probably squat parties that are not necessarily legal, but but I'm also that's not okay. not fully against. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay I've with I've played that. a few squat parties and I'm really okay with yeah. that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that um it is devastating to see these these venues go and I hope that you know there will be support given and that most will find a way to to survive, but I also think you're right that music 
will always find a way right and the grassroots music scene will always find a way and um we've outdone ourselves on going off on a massive tangent before we've even started but also kind of relevant for many reasons so i think that's fine we'll just cut most of it out don't worry <laughs> we we probably won't though so <laughs> so lazy editing effort so um i'm gonna try and get into it now so yeah so i sort of went down a bit of a rabbit hole today of looking into the origins of like the things that that gig we do at gigs sort of you know the activities that happen at gigs it's hard to find the right word to put on it as a collective thing but um so yeah so i'm gonna gig ritual gig rituals yeah yeah. maybe yeah so i'm gonna start off um with headbanging um and it's one of these things as well that as soon as you try and talk about all this stuff and like you're reading it on wikipedia all you can't help but sound like a massive nerd that's never done it before. Do you know what I mean? Even if that's not true, but as soon as you try and talk about it, that's sort of how it comes across. Do you know what I mean? Headbanging. Head discuss. Let's discuss headbanging. Um, so yeah, but anyway, still, I think I uncovered some quite interesting things. So, um, quite possibly the earliest example of people headbanging is actually in Sufi music. So... For like dating back centuries, um, headbanging has been common in Islamic devotional Sufi music, um, such as the Indian subcontinents. Um, Indian, I've had quite a bit to drink today. I feel like I'm struggling to speak. It's not a good sign already. <laughs> this is going so well. I know. I'm like four gins deep. Anyway, um, <laughs> been sitting in the garden in the sun. Um, so, uh, such as the Indian subcontinent's 600-year-old Qawwali tradition. So, Qawwali is a form of Sufi Islamic devotional singing, which um, also includes some musical instrument use now. Um, but the performances often have performers and spectators sort of induced into a trance-like state um, and headbanging in a manner that's pretty similar to what you see at, like, metal and rock concerts and stuff now. Um so I like the way you're sort of demonstrating it, something. Well, trying, trying <laughs> I don't really know well, what yeah. it is. You're sort of swaying. Is it, no, but isn't it like a kind of swaying thing with your hair? It's not like doing like a circ. It's not like chaos. Oh no, I'm not. It's not like, like fucking windmilling. But like no, exactly. <laughs> but no, like, but like just trying to. <laughs> but anyway, it's arguably the origin of it. You could say the first example of it um, comes from that. But then looking at more sort of, um, you know, up to date, what we see and what we associate with kind of rock music and more commonly now. Um, So it's, as with most of these things, sort of contested as to where these things come from, which I find quite interesting, especially when people want to make a claim for it, which you'll see as we go through, I find Mm -hmm. quite entertaining. But anyway, so it's possible that the term headbanger headbanger was coined during Led Zeppelin's first US tour in 1969. Um, Mm -hmm. So during a show at the Boston Tea Party, audience members in the first row were banging their heads against the stage in rhythm with the music. No, they were apparently. So, and why were they not like just, just? There's something wrong here. As I, like, I as I said at the beginning, this is pure Wikipedia. Okay, so feel free to question everything. But according to Wikipedia, 1969 Led Zeppelin show, Boston Tea Party, audience members first row banging their heads against the stage was a thing that was happening. 
I mean, was it like a kind of slow, oh my God. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe that. I mean, maybe they weren't actually hitting the stage. Maybe it just looked like they were. Maybe they were just so close that I don't know. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is I mean, what could you, could is claimed. You, no, but seriously, if you were on stage and you saw, if if I was playing and people were one person, hit their, one person, their loads of like one person headbutted something, I would be worried. Yeah, right? for and sure. just once, it only have to do it once, and I'd be like, is that person okay? Yeah. I don't think they are. Security, can you please... There's someone... Someone's having some kind of, like, episode. Uh-huh. They are endangering themselves. Like, could you ever just play... Oh, yeah, people just, like, smashing their skulls. Normal. Normal stuff. Normal stuff. So, um, so then also in concert footage... So I suppose this is, like, record the first recorded example, maybe. So there's concert footage of Led Zeppelin performing at the Royal Albert Hall... Um, in 1970 where again the front row can be seen headbanging throughout the performance not i don't think that's necessarily against the stage that time but maybe just more normal headbanging um ozzy osbourne um and black sabbath are also among the first like documented headbangers um as you see them doing it in footage of their gig in paris in 1970 so basically it seems like around like 69 70 was when people started headbanging like in rock music and that was sort of when that started happening yeah um however lemmy from motorhead likes to claim that they're responsible for it saying in an interview that the term headbanger may have originated from the band's name as in motorhead banger which sounds a bit like you're just trying to claim it to me that's trying i mean trying yeah agreed um, just because you've got the word head. Yeah, exactly. Just because you've got head in the name, you're going to put banger after it and claim that you fucking came up with it. Um, but in general, it's sort of accepted that the practice and its association with the rock genre was popularised by Angus Young from ACDC. It's generally mm-hmm. sort of credited with sort of popularising it and making it a thing. But maybe it goes even further back than that. Um also early televised performances in the 50s of Jerry Lee Lewis um you see young male fans who had sort of grown their hair in the same fashion as Lewis um with like his front locks um where they would fall in front of his face Lewis would continuously Mm. sort of flip the hair back away from his face um and fans would sort of um mimic that that movement and that sort of repeated like flicking the mm. hair back which was also a bit like head banging so it's all a bit all over the place where it came from um so what do you reckon who do you want to give credit for for head banging this guy i went to college with <laughs> pv and he used to just do crazy head banging like his head would just spin round and round and round yeah like his head was gonna fall off it was just mesmerizing to watch <laughs> I think I think he created. So it. I don't think anyone. Did you've it, decided so. that he he deserves the credit. Fair enough. Okay. When I had illegal ID and went to a club at thirteen, I think, you know, that was uh, yeah. That's that's I saw the birth of headbanging. Beautiful. Um, in the nineties, I love it. Um, and then now is just a moment of my like insight into the bizarreness of Wikipedia. Okay, so Wikipedia has basically three sections in its article on headbanging. You've got Sufi music. You've got rock music. Yeah. The third section is parrots. What? So, <laughs> the last bit on Wikipedia, and I'm going to read this word for word because it's brilliant. So just listen. This is the last bit that's on Wikipedia about headbanging. 
At least one parrot, a cockatoo named Snowball, developed the habit of headbanging to music, causing something of an internet sensation. Scientists were intrigued, as untrained dancing among animals is rare. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why is that in there? (laughs) That, that's not... That's not real, is it? That's just, that's just been. Dumped I mean, no, in. that is real. Like, uh, I, I was, no, but that's just been dumped in this headband. Is but, it really but, that relevant? Yeah. Is why really... has it got its own section? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, when when you're talking when you're talking about headbanging, there are three main things to consider: Sufi music, rock music, and parrots. Like, do you know what I mean? Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, who decided that? Absolutely brilliant. Next thing, I took a bit of a. A dive into was stage diving and crowd surfing. I see what you did there. I know it wasn't that clever, but I'm going to take it. So, um, long before the word was invented for stage diving, apparently that they reckon that stage diving took place during the first Dutch concert by the Rolling Stones um, in 1964. So this is possibly the first example of some stage diving that happened. Jim Morrison. Also an early performer known for having jumped into the crowd at several concerts. However, for the most part, Iggy Pop is generally credited with popularising stage diving in popular rock music. Um, Also known for, you know, performing such stage theatrics as rolling around in broken glass and exposing himself to the crowd. Although those things didn't catch on quite as much as the stage diving. Mm, I wonder why. (laughs) Um, so he may have invented it, crowd surfing, um, in 1970 at the Cincinnati Summer Pop Festival. The first documented video of crowd surfing, though, is actually not until 1980. So not until 10 years later is there any video evidence of crowd surfing, um, which was um, Bruce Springsteen um, at a rock concert at Arizona State University when he was during a live performance of 10th Avenue Freeze Out. So apparently 1980, again, according to Wikipedia, so anyone who can find another example to dispute it, feel free. But apparently the first video evidence of crowd surfing is Bruce Springsteen um, in Arizona in 1980. Again, what I enjoy is that there is somebody who wants to take credit for it and claim that they invented it, which I just find amusing. So Peter Gabriel is convinced no. is convinced that he's the one that invented crowd surfing. So in early 1980, Peter Gabriel was reported to have crowd surfed during performances of Games Without Frontiers by falling into his audience crucifix style and then being passed around. Um, and then during a later tour in 82, um, he crowd surfed during performances of Lay Your Hands On Me um, and then the rear sleeve of the 1983 album Plays Live features a photograph of him crowd surfing, although the image has been rotated so that it looks like he's standing, but it's an image of him crowd surfing. But this is what he has to say about it. So he says, yeah. Iggy Pop had jumped into an audience prior to me, but he hadn't done that thing of lying on the hands and being carried around by the audience. I had the idea from a game you did with a therapy group where you had to fall backwards and trust the person behind to catch you. 
I was always interested in closing the gap between the performer and the audience. At an open air show in Chicago, I was passed around and returned to the stage minus every piece of clothing except my underpants. There was an edge to doing it and part of you was praying you'd get back to the stage in one piece. So Peter Gabriel is the one that likes to claim that he invented it. People in general think that Iggy Pop invented it, but it maybe happened even earlier with the Rolling Stones and Jim Morrison, basically. So again, what do you reckon? Who do you want to give the credit to? Therapist groups. <laughs> mean girls. Trustfuls. Mean girls. The film, yeah. the theme, the film <laughs> Mean Girls. Yes, into it, 100%. <laughs> Um, <laughs> do, do you like the way I'm just ignoring all of your It's brilliant. It's perfect. Creating my own. It's great. I'm 100% on board. A um, couple of other random interesting facts about crowd surfing. So the world record holder for the highest number of crowd surfers um, ever recorded in one performance is Enter Shikari during their performance at Reading really? Festival in 2009. So... Yeah, their performance reading 2009 apparently has the highest number of recorded crowd surfers during the show. Um, mm. Also interesting, crowd surfing extends. How, how was that? How 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 did who who? <laughs> well, who? well, it's the in the Guinness. Who's, it's it, who's checking? Well, it's in the Guinness World Book of Records. So uh, for whatever reason, it must so have been. I set it up? So I think I think it was somewhat set up. I think they were encouraging it to try and break the record. I think to some extent is part of it. Um, but apparently for it to be recorded, it was how many people were crowd surfed and then came over the barrier, right? And then were sent round. So uh, it, it's right, number okay. of people is recorded by number of people coming over the barrier, basically. Um, Have you ever crowd surfed? Yeah. Have you ever crowd surfed? Have I? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When? Um, I had an awful experience where I lost my shoe. Did you? Um, during Blur at Brixton. And I also needed to wee, but the crowd was like falling about all over the place. And I thought, someone's going to break my toes <laughs> in this. And so I thought the only way, and I was terrified of crowd surfing. So I thought there's only one way to get out of this quickly. It was by and crowd so surfing. I, uh, yeah, crowd surfed out. Love it. Good effort. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still lost my shoe, though. Which but, is know. not ideal. What shoes were they? Didn't lose my toes, though. Um, Paula's got a story about this. There were a pair of shoes, uh, like kind of, Conversey type trainers that I bought and I didn't realise that they were actually odd shoes I'm sorry explain they they had a different like kind of line thing how did you buy odd they, shoes they, where they, did they you buy both, them they were from? both maroon they were from Ireland actually and um, the shop not the country um, <laughs> Okay. River Island, even. That was That's why I was something confused. Didn't I was like, <laughs> something didn't make sense in what I just said. And I can't work out why. River Island. I was thinking, I think she means River Island, but I'm not sure. Maybe there's a shop called Island. <laughs> I, I had I had <laughs> considered that you might have meant the country, to be honest. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, they only sell odd shoes in Ireland. No River Islands and there were these maroon shoes in the sale and I bought them and I didn't realise that one had this kind of straight line uh-huh. and said something else and the other one was was dipped and they were both like one was a, a full size and one was a half size so they were definitely what? like not the right pair of shoes that I just bought that I just like you just wore them anyway foot that's really big and I was like no the shoe's just a different size <laughs> I don't know why I'm really amused by this story. 
So I think I was cursed with those shoes and I blame oh, those God. shoes for for my almost crushed foot. But they led <laughs> they led to your crowd surfing experience, so you know. Yeah. It all everything happens for a reason. So my interesting fact feels less interesting now, I'm gonna say it anyway. Um so crowd surfing extended for the first time to the classical music scene in June <laughs> So someone was like freaking out playing the violin so, and like carried on the show. It wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a, a musician, it was an audience member. So in June twenty fourteen at the Bristol Proms, an audience member was ejected by fellow audience members during a performance of Handel's Messiah after he took the director's invitation to clap and whoop and cheer to the music a step too far by attempting to crowd surf. <laughs> I think that's I think that's the best I think that's the best one. Although I just just have a vision of like a cramp piano. <laughs> carried across. Being across. <laughs> oh my god. And I don't know why that's because that's not actually funny. That's so <laughs> It seems funny right now, but I've had a lot <laughs> That's of alcohol. the sort of things so. that impress me. I've had quite a bit of wine as yeah. well, so I think I'll just laugh at anything. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's good. I like that one. Yeah. So um, so yeah. So that's my my facts are found on stage diving, and crowd surfing. So I'm going to wrap it up with moshing finally. Okay. Um, so um, so moshing originated in the hardcore punk scenes of California and Washington DC um, around 1980. So I've sort of tried to do them a bit chronologically. So headbagging sort of came first and then people started crowd di- yeah. uh, stage diving and crowd surfing and then moshing came around sort of 1980s in mm-hmm. the hardcore punk scene. So through the 90s, 1980s, it spread to other branches of punk rock and thrash metal and grunge um, and okay. was like gradually exposed to the mainstream. Um, and since then, now you can see it in all sorts of different genres where there's energetic music, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes in, when it doesn't make any sense, even I get I, I've got no issue with moshing in general, right? But it irritates me when it happens at times to just feel like it makes no sense, <laughs> like with the music. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's yeah. a band that like you would mosh to, but it's like their slow song and people still mosh or anyway, putting my personal biases aside. So. Apparently, so the pogo in punk was sort of like the first form or like the predecessor to moshing, Mm. okay? And according um, to the documentary, The Filth and the Fury about the Sex Pistols, um, it was invented by Sid Vicious in 1976, the pogo. So Mm -hmm. he supposedly invented the dance as a way of mocking people who came to see the Sex Pistols performances but were not part of the punk movement. Um, and basically, whether he invented it or not, the pogo became quickly associated with punk rock. Um, and again, just an enjoyable Wikipedia moment of how Wikipedia describes the pogo. Okay, so <laughs> the basic steps allow for a variety of interpretations, some of which might appear quite violent. Pogo dancers have their choice of keeping their torsos rigid or thrashing them about holding their arms stiffly at their sides or flailing them, keeping their legs together or kicking about, jumping straight up and down, jumping in any direction or spinning in the air. 
Occasionally, dancers collide, but this is not necessarily part of pogo dancing. <laughs> I feel like... I want to see an instructional video. <laughs> I know, um... right? That's what that feels like that lends itself to, right? Like it's like a written instructional video. Well, well, randomly, I mean, I've one of the sites I'm quoting from today is How Stuff Works, uh-huh. and it talks about the Manson cult. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like this needs to be one of those mm-hmm. um, wiki how-tos. Um, well, that's exactly what yeah. it feels like, and it just made me laugh, so I thought I'd read it out. But um, as so then, as the more aggressive hardcore punk emerged in the early 80s, the dancing sort of became more violent and it evolved into what we sort of see as moshing today. Um, yeah. So there was Dave Wood, who was an avid concert goer and roadie for the Weirdos, um, who popularized moshing at a show at the Roxy in 1977 it's possibly one of the earlier examples um mm-hmm. generally around that time in California you had hardcore punk bands like Black Flag and Fear who were becoming popular um and people were you know doing these sort of dances at their shows and Fear's infamous 1981 musical performance on Saturday Night Live um, sort of helped to expose moshing to more of a wider audience and a more mainstream audience. The term mosh itself um, came into use in the early 80s hardcore scene in Washington. Um, And early on, the dance was spelled as mash in fanzines. I I was about to say, it's like a... A mishmash of people dancing. Yeah, together, yeah. So, surely. so it was generally spelled as mash in fanzines and record liner notes, um, but pronounced mosh. And the reason for that was so the band Bad Brains are sort of regarded as the band that put moshing on the map. And HR from the band um, used the term mash in lyrics and concert stage banter sort of incite people to do it and also to describe the aggressive and sort of violent dancing of the scene. So to mash it up was to go wild with the frenzy of the music. Um, But due to his Jamaican accent and pronunciation of the word, the fans heard it as mosh instead. So that Mm. was how it became mosh, basically, just because of the way he pronounced it. He was actually saying mash, but people heard it as mosh. And then mosh was what became sort of the common vernacular for it. Um, So yeah, so that's basically my little dive into some of the things we do at gigs and where they came from cool and out of the three which do you do which do i do none of them really anymore i've been known to do them all that well not all but been known to do pretty much all of them (laughs) i'd love to see you mosh i've moshed (laughs) i've moshed i've been i'm no stranger to a mosh pad it's been a while (laughs) but i don't know that i would anymore they're like i I was trying to think when the last I time I was, I was in a mosh pit. It was when I was in Canada. I was in, in when I lived in Montreal. I went. I was in a few mosh pits here and there, about the place. I think. I think there's a difference from like when you kind of just get dragged into one, at a, like a really busy yeah. gig, and there's no escape, so you are just part of it, as opposed to some of the smaller gigs where there are, there's like one person <laughs> who decides they're moshing. Yeah. That's exactly what I mean about moshing at inappropriate moments, which is really annoying. Like when there's actually a mosh pit and it's appropriate to the music and it's all caught up in the moment, then I think it's great. But when somebody just does it inappropriately, it's really annoying. So, um, so yeah, but it's interesting. I'd never, I'd never really thought about where these things come from and how they've developed and the fact that they have to have a starting point, right? That like they're not things that people yeah. have always done forever. 
Um, so it's interesting just to look at where and how they started and how they've just become these things that now are totally normal to us and that we expect to happen at gigs and as a reaction to music, right? No, it's, it is it is really interesting because you don't you don't think about these things, the origins of them, no. really. And then and then I just sit here wondering, as in, well, actually, you know, did those things start a lot earlier? in other cultures I think well yeah I think things like headbanging I mean headbanging is just like a pretty natural response to music right like it's just a way of moving quite naturally to like whatever happens you sort of nod your head right and then it's like a more extreme version of that but things like you know stage diving and, and moshing I think were things that didn't really start until later like I feel like oh I don't know I bet Jesus stage dive. <laughs> Maybe. You know. But was that a stage dive or was that a trustful? <laughs> okay. Well, who knows? And where do you I mean, draw the I line? Could, I could say some other things right now and where do I draw the line and what I say? <laughs> but I feel like being brought up Catholic, I'm allowed to... You're you allowed know, some leeway. I'm allowed to talk about JC. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. I uh, re- should we... Move, moving on before I start blasting. Yeah, I feel like it's more. maybe time um, for some new music. Yeah, so do you want to go with your, your track? Because yeah. I'm really eager to hear All right, this. cool, let's do it. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I've got um, the song I Am Leaving Berlin by Teenage Waitress. So Teenage Waitress is um, a new solo project from Daniel Ash, based in Southampton, uh, well, based in a Southampton bedroom and now signed to Colorama Records, which is a new, na- a new label set up by Andy Crofts from um, the Paul Weller Band and the Moons. Um, Daniel is gearing up to take on the world, or at least somewhere outside his bedroom, with his debut LP, Love and Chemicals. It's often fuzzy, occasionally bonkers, and normally always dragged into time. So this is I'm Leaving Berlin. Ever felt like you're not where you should be Living through the cracks in your routine And I'm getting kind of sick of playing make-believe That everything is gonna change come New Year's
I'm Leaving Berlin by Teenage Waitress. Um, and I really love that song. I think there's something sort of like Beatles-esque about it. Um, and it's got like this yeah. sort of like dreamy, chilled out vibe I really like um, and such a catchy hook in the chorus. And there's also something about it that resonates quite personally with me in the lyrics as well, where it's sort of like, I'm haunted by the feeling I'm not where I should be. And um, sort of the... The two years I spent living in Montreal, um, I loved for so many reasons. I had so many great experiences, but I did always have this feeling like I wasn't where I was supposed to be and I can't explain it and I don't know why. And it was just some weird psychological thing. But this song weirdly resonates with me for that. And that sort of like way I felt when I left and when I came back here and coming back here felt like I came back into myself. I just, I Mm -hmm. somehow get from this song, which I think is also part of why I love it so much. I mean, I thought, you know, it's it's both simplistic, but actually very clever yeah. as well. The way that it, it sort of weaves with the melody and does kind of unexpected sort of turns with the kind of chord changes yeah. and and things I've, but but still beautiful with it it's not off kilter but it kind of just has this almost unsettling edge to totally it, while being beautiful and pretty and and all of that there's just yeah i really 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 like, like yeah no song. i agree with that totally i think dan is such a, a talented songwriter um i think he's brilliant and i can't wait to hear the you know the rest of the lp when when he releases it um of what he's going to do with it because yeah i think it's great we just need to get him to start naming our tracks and stuff because they just sound so like they're they're classics yeah. already. The naming is is totally. great. Cool. Um, okay. Let's do it. So from one musical genius to one complete band, <laughs> um, let's finally get into Charles Manson. It's been a long time coming. Hey, let's do it. Hey. Okay. It has it has been a very long time coming. So. I'm doing cult leader Charles Manson and his many connections to music, although they'll just pop up throughout the story rather than just one running list of things. And actually, when I was researching this, and like today when I was just running over my notes, I just thought I I should probably have listened back to a lot of our podcasts because I think there's some connections that I found while doing other people's stories that you can't necessarily find online that I didn't take note Mm. of because his name came up so often that I don't think I've captured them all. But anyway, uh, I I don't want to give him too much airtime, just half the time of this show, that's all. Um, Yeah, so the Manson family was a desert commune and the cult was led by Charles Manson. 
it was active in California in sort of late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you know. No, a little bit. About I don't know it. loads and loads, but I know a bit. Well, there was around kind of I mean, I've seen I've seen varying reports of some that say there were only 50 members, right. some say 100 okay. members. So, through through when you think about cults, um like Jonestown mm-hmm. and 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 a lot of lot of other kind of cults that suddenly I can't remember any Where's all that, the Jonestown the family like there's all yeah. yes 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 loads right you know that have such huge following this this wasn't a big cult but it was a big cult with celebrity status when I say celebrity status in the sense of just the circles that he moved yeah. in not that there were lots of celebrities in in the cult if that makes and it was sense. like in anyway, Hollywood so there was, right like it was in LA in Hollywood yeah, yeah yeah in LA yeah in California so so there was around sort of between 50 to 100 members and there were mostly women mm-hmm. actually in the cult and they all shared, um, I mean the reports are like, they all shared Manson's passion for LSD and magic mushrooms. It's like, that was the time, yeah. right? That's just what people were, were doing and uh, yeah, whether, you know, also because he picked up a lot of sort of like people hitchhiking and young people travelling, mm-hmm. there's also I think a view of, I don't think they sat down and had a discussion. Well, you like LSD? I like LSD. It's from cold. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, you know, there's a, well, there was clearly manipulation going on, which, which is throughout this whole, this whole story. But anyway, the family, the Manson family, believed that Charlie Boy was a manifestation of Jesus. Okay, I didn't necessarily know that, actually. Believe it or not. I didn't yeah. know that. And that his prophecies of an imminent sort of race war were true. Um, and it wasn't just... A race war it was like an apocalyptic race okay. war that would that would end everything mm. um essentially um i mean so manson taught his followers that that they were also the reincarnation of the original christians um and that the romans were the establishment wow so literally he just said as in you know looking back at history the establishment Oh, the establishment yeah. back in the day they were the rope that I just it's just yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I don't really know any, anyone was really convinced of of this stuff but anyway um let's look at um oh my notes that came up are on Phil Spector and I do have a correction for last week's episode that someone emailed me about I said that Phil Spector sorry this was me completely going off <laughs> Charles Manson but onto another psychopath Phil Spector. I know you're frozen um, now as well. Basically, I said he was in a band called the Teddy Boys in um, 1958. It wasn't the Teddy Boys. It was the Teddy Bears. Oh. I'm sorry. And I should have known that because I like was reading from Wikipedia and I thought, I blame Wikipedia. And I looked back and was like, no, I've literally just thought of Teddy Bears Picnic and put that in. Um, not Teddy Bears Picnic, Teddy Boys as in 50s Teddy's mm. Boys rather than Teddy Bears Picnic. <laughs> Fuck it, I can't even, I can't even get my own inaccuracies <laughs> right when I talk about them. Jesus! <laughs> Talking about Jesus Christ, let's go back to his reincarnation in Charles Manson. Um, anyway, so Charles Manson was born, um, <laughs> he was born 16. No, he wasn't born 16. <laughs> this is going so badly, Julia's saying. Julia's here. 
She just, she just, she likes to pop up. She can't wait to come on the podcast. <laughs> but rather than do research, she just thinks she'll just interrupt me. Really. She really needs to be on an episode because she clearly is just desperate she's, to get on it. I know she's desperate to get on it. She's now, look, she's hovering around like an extra in EastEnders. <laughs> and now she's watering plants around me. It's like, she, do the, normal, okay, listeners. Sorry, I really have gone a digress of this. Whenever I do like a drinks thing with friends and I'm in the kitchen on a laptop, Julia seems to always just be doing the washing up in the background. <laughs> anyway, this is not funny to anyone else. I'm going to go back to Charles Manson. Okay, he wasn't born 16 years old. He was born to a 16-year-old runaway named Kathleen Maddox on November 12, 1934 in St... Oh, Julia, man, I'm never going to get through this. It's... It is my, oh my God, <laughs> it is my, my daughter's birthday. And I was just saying before we started this podcast that she, she's she's two and a half and how I feel like she's possessed <laughs> at the moment. And she shares a birthday with but Charles But she's also Manson. very lovely. She's also very lovely, but she does share a birthday Holy with Charles shit. Manson. <gasps> so I just start that bit again. He was born to a 16 year old runaway, Kathleen Maddox on November 12th, 1934, at Cincinnati Hospital. His father was Colonel Walker Henderson Scott, and he was an army man stationed nearby. And when Kathleen told him she was pregnant, um, as it says on Wikipedia, Scott fled. Right, so therefore, it's really unlikely that, that Charles Manson ever met his, his right. real father. Um, the word fled... When they say people fled... Sounds very dramatic, do doesn't sounds, it? It's really dramatic. It's like, you know, what happened? So, you know, they were having like a nice little picnic. And he just like ran the fuck she away. she suddenly turned around. <laughs> exactly. She just... It's so extreme, isn't it? It's like, you know, oh, so you're preggers. That's great. What's that over there? And then just like fucking runs off and jumps yes. in a, you know, drive, just drive. Someone's going, who are you? I don't care. Just, just drive, drive. You know, or maybe he just, he was just like, aha, uh-huh, aha, uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. And she's looking at him. And then he just like, clear, just bolts. She's like, what the fuck's just happened? He just runs, trips over a cat and just like gets up and just keeps going. Or did, or did, or did, did he do I mean? like so, the cliched thing of like, oh, I'm just going down the shops and then just never came back. Like I'm going to buy a pack of cigarettes. Buy a pack yeah. of cigarettes. <laughs> and just never came back. Yeah, yeah. Or did he just go back to his army base, go and visit his superior and go, um... Can I can I get a transfer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like now? Um yeah. It's just fled. It's, yeah, sorry. Over, overly I just... dramatic, I agree. Charles later got his name Manson from William Eugene I can't speak. Manson. <laughs> whom Kathleen began dating in nineteen thirty four. Anyway, to cut a long story short on that front, um William was like a really heavy drinker and the marriage didn't last more than a few years. Um, Kathleen also struggled with her own kind of alcoholic tendencies and, and she'd leave Charles for days to kind of fend for himself, either with babysitters or just on his own while she went bar hopping, disappearing and uh, yeah. So anyway, so the marriage didn't last and, and she was a bit of a shitty parent essentially is what I'm saying. Um, she was also involved in a robbery in 1934. No, that's a lie. 1939. And the courts gave her a 10-year prison sentence and Charles went to live with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. Um, his mother was paroled um, 
literally just like three years later and the pair were reunited but Kathleen carried on being crap and Charles basically started getting into petty crime himself and he bounced from reform school to reform school and, and then into prison and, and things like this. And Manson, Charles Manson claimed later in life that he had um, been beaten and raped while he was at a school for juvenile delinquents. Um, but he also claimed a lot of things, so who knows whether that was true or not. But I think, I think to cut a long story short, he had a crappy non-existent childhood. Um, he wasn't allowed to be a child. He, yeah, it, it, needless to say, it was rubbish. But, um, but regardless of that, in 1955, he married a local waitress named um, Roselli Jean Willis. And for a brief time, he actually was working an honest job and lived a quiet life. Um, but then he decided, you know, he, he had itchy feet and he wanted to move to Los Angeles and he convinced his wife to do so. But he didn't really have any money, so he just thought, I'll steal a car. And he got caught and he went to prison. Um, then his wife, during pris- while he was in prison, asked for a divorce. He freaked out, tried to escape, which ultimately screwed up his like kind of upcoming parole, and he didn't get that, so he stayed in prison. Anyway, when he got out of prison, he then tried his hand at being a pimp. He also did things like forging checks, getting caught, violating probation, ending up back in prison. The list just goes on and on. Um... So one of the things he wasn't was like a criminal mastermind um, in that sense. Um, later, yes, but not something to be respected. Um, so how did the cult start? Um, there's an article on how stuff works, which um, presents it quite nicely. Uh, so I'm just going to read a paragraph from that. It says, um, so the family... The Manson family started very simply. Charles Manson found a girlfriend in 1967. He met Mary Burner and she was a college educated library worker and she um, met Charles in Haights-Ashbury in San Francisco and moved into her apartment. Um, She was taken, this is apparently what she said, she was taken by the way he seemed to offer an alternative to her everyday mainstream life. Manson represented to her a life of freedom and opportunity. No, but I, but I think, but I think that is what drew so many people to him was that it was like he was offering this alternative lifestyle. And well, yeah, but freedom. I wonder. I think that was what drew the a lot thing of people is, I wonder to how him. he spun that, given his near constant, mm. you know, his consistent sort of incarceration <laughs> from always like going to prison. <laughs> freedom, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the the point is actually, uh, just looking over my notes, clearly this was after he got out of prison and him and his wife have broken up because it was in 1967. Um, anyway, he soon added a second girlfriend. Well, he still has his other one. She was fine with that. Um, so, you know, as you do. And then he travelled the kind of West Coast, adding new followers along the way. And as I mentioned before, these were mostly young women And at the time, Manson was um, primarily motivated by sex. Um, So it was a kind of, you know, hippie cult. Um, But speaking of the sort of travelling the coast, this brings me to the first music connection. Because I did an episode on Kim Gordon. And, you know, I I remember um, 
this coming up in her memoir, she mentions that um, her brother was once invited up to the ranch, which is what the, the kind of mansion... Mansion? I keep saying mansion. Manson. Um, yeah, so he was yeah. invited up there by one of the, the kind of members of the cult. And uh, Kim Gordon's brother was called Keller. And he obviously didn't go, which is a good thing. But one of Keller's um, ex-girlfriends was actually abducted and later found stabbed to death. And it's believed that she was one of the early victims of the cult. Right. So that's that's one connection. But there are more. So moving on, I mentioned in another podcast that Charles Manson was a kind of rock star wannabe, um, which I imagine has been... From from what I've read about him, you know, I imagine this is one of those annoying types, you know, that carries an acoustic guitar around with them. You meet up with them for a catch-up in the park and they just fucking whip out their guitar and start playing shit songs at you and they're staring at you singing and you sit there awkwardly smiling, wondering when it's going to end. Like your personal pet It hate, is, right? but it's just, you know, I have, I have been to other sort of barbecues and picnics and there are people that just decide to sort of indulge you in a very brief conversation before pulling out a guitar and just playing at you. I mean, that's it. It's just playing at you. <laughs> and you're going, oh, okay. And they're singing. And you think, oh, it's going to end any second. No, no. Oh, And then afterwards I ask, what did you think? And it's just like, I'm too polite. It's like, what did I think? And there's one, there's one response going on in my head and there's another coming out my mouth and it's encouraging them to bloody play more, isn't it? So it's, uh, yeah. And so they do. And, yeah, it's my personal hell. Um, <laughs> anyway, Manson learned to play guitar while he was in prison. Of course he did. Um, when he got out, he soon managed to kind of weave his way into sort of musical circles and he became friends with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who in turn introduced him to Neil Young. And I already mentioned about the, the Beach Boys um, previously that... Um, he wrote a song for Dennis Wilson, who then went, oh, that's great. The lyrics are a bit dark, but liked the melody and changed the name <laughs> of it and uh, essentially changed changed the name, changed the lyrics and um, had some death threats after that. But I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, so going back to the, the old Neil Young thing, um, in a 1986 interview, Neil Young recalled that Manson was like, what he was like as a performer at that stage. And he said he had this kind of music that no one was doing, freaky cult music. Um, he would... I, I'm, I'm, I'm adding my own comments into this quote, by the way, yeah. Um, I, I've noticed, I've noticed. He would sit down with the guitar, annoyingly, and start playing and make stuff up. <laughs> Fuck off. Different every time. It kept coming out and coming out and coming out. Fuck off. No one wants to hear it. Then he would stop <laughs> and you would never hear that one again. So he was basically just improvising like that, a 10 minute long song or whatever. I was going to say, there's a word for yeah, that. It's, it's improvisation. Just, yeah, anyway, so musically, I thought he was very unique. Shit. Um, he doesn't say that at all. I thought he really had something crazy, something great. Yeah, something crazy. You're right there. He was like a living mm. poet. Um, other people said he was a shit version of Bob Dylan. Anyway, it was always coming out. Of course it was. Um, he had a lot of girls around at the time. And I thought, well, this guy has a lot of girlfriends. That's Neil. Thanks for that. 
Thanks for that, Neil. What? Well, that was how you what judge talent. Thanks, Neil. Like, if there's lots of girls around, they yeah, must be talented. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> like, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, and I, I suppose well, what he was doing was, I mean, to be honest, I just think it was like what everyone was doing at the time. So Manson saw the sort of social upheaval of his country and distilled his sort of observations and experiences into song, right? Um, and this is the the man who conducted a night of five brutal murders in his name, basically wanted to be a folk singer. You know, I don't think the two go together very well, but, you know. Being a, you know, what does being, what does being a serial killer go well with, to be fair? I mean. But in 1960, so, so from 1967 to 68, he kind of, penned his own tunes and recorded them on tape and it was an album called Lie, The Love and Terror Cult. Fucking <laughs> 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 brilliant. Yep. Um, so the songs, you know, they were described as very average. Um, <laughs> there was the stereotypical thing of, you know, the disdain for the police, looking for freedom and having this kind of hobo lifestyle where we all just take drugs and don't do anything and magically food appears on our plate and we don't have to work and like buying into that oh, whole counterculture yeah thing, but in a right? really kind of yeah um but so my point is that yes counterculture at the time i think it was very important but the things like what i suppose my point is what he was doing was not what he was singing about was nothing revolutionary nothing different and there were people doing it a lot better than him and actually having some real political backbone to it. Um, anyway, so behind mm-hmm. the, the sort of music ethos was basically, it was rooted in racism um, and was mm. fueled by sort of uh, LSD kind of madness over this ever-appending apocalyptic race war, as I mentioned, with, that Charlie called Helter Skelter, which will bring us into another musical reference at the moment. So he, he believed that basically blacks and whites would riot to death. And the family would be the phoenix that would rise out of the ashes and rule the world. That's what he said, essentially. Um, so next music connection I'm going to bring into this is singer Mike Love um, also had a connection with Manson and his so-called kind of disciples, if you like. Um, Susan Atkins, who was one of the members of the cult, was actually the babysitter of... Um, Mike loves children while she was in the cult, which I think after what happened, not not you know during that time that she would have been a babysitter is absolutely terrifying. That you think, oh my god, I left my children in her charge. Oh my god. Anyway, yeah. Um, in addition, as detailed in his memoir, Good Vibrations, um, Love said he left Wilson's home after an odd confrontation with the cult leader who basically tried to orchestrate a sex party with him. Could you imagine that? You know, uh, yeah, so this is your babysitter's leader and uh, let's all just get naked and have sex. (laughs) No. Uh, But like Neil Young, Mama Cass, Elliot and John Phillips... Um, I mentioned the Manson connection in in a bit more detail than I'm going to do in in this in this segment because I don't want to repeat stuff so much. But I'm going to give yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. different angle. I mean, in short, there there are uh, a lot of connections in the music world. But so Mama Cass and John Phillips are the mamas and papas. 
um, obviously knew Charles Manson, but they, I mean, they were friends with him and they believed that he had a chance to be like a, a folk star to the point that they introduced him to record company executives. Um, but the record labels listened to the stuff and gave it a massive thumbs down. Um, I mean, Mama Cass shared drug dealers with, um, with Charles Manson and they were friends and John Phillips was invited. This is a separate connection from... Well, it's not a separate connection from the Manson family, but it's kind of outside of the cult, um, just of how connected it is. John Phillips from Mums mm-hmm. and Papas was invited over to Sharon Tate's house for a party. Um, well, it wasn't a party. It was just like a kind of like gathering. But he was just way too wasted to make it that night. And it was a good job that he didn't because that was the night that Sharon Tate and her friends were murdered by the Manson family. Wow. So he missed out on that party. Yeah. Close shave of that. And you just think, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, but Mama Cass and um, John would later have to testify in, in the trial of Charles Manson. Also, another connection is, did you know that at one point, the daughter of Peter Shaw and Murder, She Wrote star Angela Lansbury became involved in the Manson cult? Yeah, Lansbury told the Daily Mail, known in the UK as the Daily Hate, because it's such a horrible newspaper, (laughs) um, that Deirdre Shaw, Lansbury's daughter, got mixed up with the cult group. She said, it pains me to say it, but... At one stage, Deirdre was in with a crowd led by Charles Manson. She was one of many youngsters who knew him and was very fascinated. She said, he was an extraordinary character, charismatic in many ways, and there is no question about that. Which is true. I mean, that's that's one of the reports that yeah. he, he really was kind of a star to his own following um, of, of people and, and lured them in 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 this kind of pretense of love and 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 freedom but but i mean you just you just have to see these people i mean the fact is as i mentioned after i've mentioned in another episode that the people that committed the murders you see them even when they're off drugs but they still look like they're on drugs it's like they've been brainwashed to the degree Mm. that they're not even on the same plane as us man that's that's always the case that's that's always the case with the with, with people who are successful cult leaders, right? Is that they're, they're they're always said to have this like this charisma, right, and this power, and people often talk about their eyes, right, and like just this way that for whatever reason they seem to be able to have this power over yeah. people, and and like the way that they yeah just something about about their eyes and power they seem to be able to have through that yeah. as well. That's um, all quite terrifying. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just get into these. Okay, so yeah. let's just briefly look at the Tate murders. Uh, I'm sure you know all about them. Um, I'm I'm not gonna. Th- there's a lot of detail online. Um, I'm gonna go into some of it. So listeners, if you don't, if this isn't your bag, totally, you know, you can switch off. I'm not gonna go into the the graphic detail that that it does on like other true crime, other true crime, like, secretly we're a true crime podcast, Gary, right? <laughs> on, um, no, on other on like po- true crime podcasts or anything you will read on those sorts of sites, I'm really not going to go into those details, but I think it's important just to put some context into what happened because Charles Manson didn't actually himself physically kill anyone. 
but he convinced people to do it for him and and yeah which is kind of scarier right absolutely savage so on the nights of august 8th and 9th four members of the manson family invaded the rented home of actress sharon tate and movie director director roman polanski um and this is in los angeles and they murdered Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, along with three friends and an 18-year-old visitor who was slain as he was leaving the home. Um, Polanski was not present on the night of the murders. He was working on a film in, in Europe. Manson had instructed um, his followers, basically, that they needed to totally destroy everyone in the house and, and to make it as gruesome as you can. So that that's that just tells you a lot, obviously. So the Manson murder squad, if you like, um, arrived at midnight. Um, Watson, who was one of the the team, climbed a telephone pole near the entrance gate and cut the phone lines to the house. The murderers backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to this state and walked back up to the house. Um, the the eighteen year old that I mentioned that visit he he had been visiting the caretaker of the property he was leaving they stopped him he got out of the car one of them tried to slash him he tried to run and they shot him dead um, on you know I think it was like four times they shot him four times or something like that um, anyway so the the murderers backed their car to the bottom of the hill and they walked they walked to the house and what happened in that house was absolutely horrifying but there were shots fired there was beatings and and there was when I say torture there was torture really involved in this I mean Sharon Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth to her child and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child but Atkins who I mentioned earlier um, who was the babysitter stabbed her 16 times a friend in the household suffered 51 stab wounds they were chased i mean these people were like woken up as they were sleeping chased around the house and atkins wrote on the wall pig in the front door in sharon tate's blood all right the next night it was charles manson went to the second house and this is the leblancia killings right um, so roused a sleeping Leno LeBlanca from the couch at gunpoint and had Watson bind his hands with a leather thong. Um, Rosemary, his wife, was brought into the living room from the bedroom and Watson followed Manson's instruction and covered the couple's heads with pillowcases, which he bound with kind of like a, a like a lamp cord or whatever. Manson then left, but he'd like sort of instructed them to just kill the couple. You know, so he never actually did anything in his in his own hands. But anyway, the point is, these murders were absolutely gruesome. But needless to say, he obviously didn't get away with it. But back to those music connections, which goes into this. So Manson blamed the Beatles, the White Album, for um, instructing him and having hidden messages. But let's let's say, you know, also in his trial, he denied making anyone do anything. But then there's this whole thing of, you know, the fact that he misread the Be- Beatles' White Album. You know, according to Paul McCartney, Manson thought that Helter Skelter referenced the four horsemen of the apocalypse as presented in the Book of Revelation. 
And Manson himself told Rolling Stone in 1970 that Revolution 9 and Piggies predicted the violent overthrow of the white man. Meanwhile, he cited lyrics from Rocky Raccoon, um, you know, Gideon checked out and he left it, no doubt, to help the Good Rockies revival as evidence that the black man is coming and going to try and take power. So, yeah, that was that was that was Charles Manson's crazy life. But there are more musical facts Just before. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say before before you move on, potentially, unless you were going to say it. Do you know about Trent Reznor's connection to that house? Where no, I don't know. I came across this in what I was looking at today somehow so Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails at one point lived in the house (gasps) where Sharon Tate was killed and recorded the Nine Inch Nails album Downward Spiral was recorded in that house um and he also and also Marilyn Manson's um Reznor produced debut album Portrait of an American Family was also recorded and and produced it in that house and yeah, and then Reznor eventually moved out of the house in December 93. And I think the new owner demolished the house and replaced it with a new Ooh, one. Yeah. But um, yeah, those two those two albums were were, were recorded and, and produced and everything in, in the house where, where the murder happened. We should happened. have done this as a Halloween special. Yeah, we should have done Too late now. Show's going out next we'll week. We'll <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so several artists have covered Manson's songs over the years. Um the Lemonheads did a rendition of um, Your Home Is Where You're Happy, which um, that doesn't sound like a Charles Manson song, does it, really? No, no it doesn't. So um, I would say I'm going to listen to that, but I'm totally not. Um, <laughs> one, I can't be bothered, I'm lazy, and two, I really just don't want to listen to anything he's penned. Um, anyway, Guns oh, yeah, and Roses, sure. Look At Your Game Girl, which was a hidden bonus track at the end of their covers album, The Spaghetti Incident. Um, and then Marilyn Manson took his name from Manson, of course. And he of also course. released a bizarre song called My Monkey, which included lyrics from the mm. Charles Manson track, track um, Mechanical Man. The lyrics in question are right. about a man who basically raises his monkey on gingerbread before his monkey is tragically hit by a train. So with that poetic <laughs> note of God. someone who clearly should uh-huh. have been a huge rock star, that ends my story yeah. on Charles Manson. Wow. Oh, one, of, one of the things I did want to say, though, I didn't, I didn't mention the fact of that... Um, so Charles Manson did get a record deal for his album that was put out. It was for his small label, which I forget the name of it, but um, it sold around 300 copies... So yeah, there you go. So so he he didn't obviously have a successful music career, and I did say I'd go back to the the Beach Boys bit, um, but I mean, as, essentially, it was a case of he wrote a song. The Beach Beach Boys did put it on a B side of a record, mm-hmm. but they did they did change the name "Cease to Exist," um, which uh, perhaps is not the cheeriest of names. Beach Boys changed it to Never Learn Not to Love and it was a B-side and um, Charles Manson was really not happy at all about the fact that they'd altered the song so much and they had not asked him, which to be honest, fair enough, I'd be a bit annoyed if someone took my song and just... Mm. suppose, yeah. And I've just clicked on a site and um, it says, was Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson the same person? <laughs> 
um, because they look alike is that they've both got that kind of late 60s early 70s beard tash and hair uh-huh like that was pretty much every Otherwise, every guy yeah. that was just yeah yeah anyway, um gotta love it when you start getting into the conspiracy oh my theories, god right? yeah i love it like they're even sitting sim you know they sit in the same way <laughs> brilliant and i think we i think we need yeah. to end off we should probably end the show i hope People are excited because I'm going to play a song by a band called The Gulps. So what can I say about this band? How would you describe them, Kerry? Because How would I describe yeah. The Gulps? Just like raw energy yep. at the end of the day. Yep, ex- exactly. They're just, they're very rock and roll. They're a bunch of lads that are yeah. absolutely great. They're based in London, but they come from different parts of Europe and the Middle East. And um, all I can say is... Whatever you've seen from like the Libertines or the Strokes or bands on that that kind of level, you know, forget those guys. I'm really serious. Like I think I think the gulps are going to be huge. So please do check them out. Like Kerry said, they've got this like kind of raw energy and they're like a kind of unique take on classic alternative pop, but totally fueled with this kind of rock and roll attitude. They're called The Gulps, and this is a song I'm going to play, and it's called The King's House. See, we win. 